0: Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Barbara Kristen talks about the Brooklyn Army Terminal, the military site turned manufacturing complex in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, designed by the famous architect Cass Gilbert. Kristen, who holds a PhD in Art and Architectural History from the Graduate Center, CUNY, is the editor and contributor to a celebrated series of essays about Gilbert, who gained a national reputation for designing the Alexander Hamilton Custom House and pioneering skyscrapers downtown, such as the Woolworth Building. Here, Kristen tells us about Gilbert's commission in the last year of World War I to build the cargo station, the U.S. Army Supply Base, now known as Brooklyn Army Terminal, which would serve as the largest military supply depot in World War II, and has since become a commercial warehouse and space for light industry. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center Programming, visit us at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening.
1: The United States Army Supply Base, also known as the United States Military Ocean Terminal and the Brooklyn Army Terminal, is an impressive and majestic complex that stands in Sunset Park on the Brooklyn waterfront. It lies west of 2nd Avenue between 58th and 63rd Streets. Built in less than a year between 1918 and 1919, The base was in the words of its architect Cass Gilbert a project of extreme simplicity one that rises quote above the streets and waterfront like some vast medieval city's wall unquote in its own time the supply base was emblematic of the most ambitious terminal warehouse construction carried out by the united states army during the first world war port terminals were started in the spring of 1917 when it was thought that the war would continue for at least another two years. These projects were planned to meet the stream of goods and personnel that were urgently needed in France, where incidentally, Gilbert's own son was fighting for the allies. The army figured it would need five tons of supplies per person, and there eventually would be 1.5 million soldiers in France. So one can do the math and understand that the need for freight handling and storage facilities was acute. Congress appropriated $150 million to construct a series of terminal storage plants, with the Brooklyn base as the largest of them all. The others were located in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Norfolk, Charleston, and New Orleans, stretching down the Atlantic coast and into the Gulf. Quartermaster General George W. Gothels, builder of the Panama Canal, was the chief officer in charge Brigadier General R.C. Marshall Jr. was initially in charge of construction on a day-to-day basis and was later replaced by B.F. Cresson Jr. These facilities were planned as, quote, great practical laboratories, unquote, as Robert McKelvey put it in 1926, where the government hoped to learn about better methods and planning for future port facilities through the operations of war terminals during the world conflict. These complexes were also considered to be national assets that would have a function after the war. When Henry C. Turner, head of the Turner Construction Company and Irving T. Bush, chief executive of the War Board in New York and Cass Gilbert met together in early 1918 to discuss the planning of the supply base, each brought useful skills and background to the task. Turner had a great deal of experience with reinforced concrete construction having specialized in this work since founding his company in 1902. As a wealthy industrialist, Bush had inherited land from his father that had been used as a dumping ground for ash and other refuse from his family's oil refinery business. He took that land located just north of the supply base site and developed it into a thriving waterfront terminal with eight piers that spurred further industrial development in the borough. For Gilbert's part, he had considerable experience with warehouse design, first in Minnesota, where he began his practice, and later in New York. In St. Paul, he had designed the Paul Gotzian Building, a combination warehouse and wholesale store. And in Minneapolis, he had designed the U.S. Realty Company Warehouse, both of which were made of brick. In 1909, however, in New York, He explored the use of reinforced concrete in the Austin Nichols and company warehouse, the general contractor of which, not surprisingly, was Turner Construction. As architectural historian Mary Beth Betts has noted, Gilbert also had many skills in realizing large scale projects with complicated mechanical and structural systems, such as the Woolworth Building. So each man's expertise and professional background got the project off to an auspicious start. Gilbert turned to the talented and well-known renderer Hugh Ferris to develop a series of presentation drawings for the project, a move that was both strategic and consistent with his business practice. These drawings were large and they conveyed a romantic grandeur of the proposed industrial complex in dramatic atmospheric light and shadow. Ferris's drawings formed the core of the presentation that the trio of men made to General Goethals in Washington DC in early 1918. The initial design proposed a program of six million square feet with two nine-story warehouses, building A and building B, an administration building, power plant, barracks, and four piers. Three of those four piers were double-decker timber roofed and enclosed on the other was an open air with gantry cranes that would assist in loading ships that were docked close at hand further a vast rail yard was planned to accommodate storage of 1300 rail cars as built the complex was trimmed down to create just 4 million square feet with both building a and building b cut to eight stories building b being reduced in size by more than half and the orientation of its interior courtyards being changed still Even with these revisions, the scale of the realized complex was immense. Both warehouses were realized at 980 feet in length. In fact, they are longer than the Woolworth Building is tall. Building B was the largest building created in reinforced concrete up to that time. It provided 53 acres of floor space within its footprint. By comparison, The overall site was nearly 100 acres and was a veritable transportation nexus. It was adjacent to the Bush Terminal to the north and the Bay Ridge Terminal of the Long Island Railroad to the south. By way of the New York Connecting Railroad, the site also offered links to the Pennsylvania Railroad and the New York, New Haven and Hartford Railroad that ran up into New England over Hellgate. To the west, a 40 foot deep water channel in New York Harbor was greatly advantageous to large, ocean-going ships that would be headed to Western Europe. Earth that was excavated from the site in order for construction to proceed was used for modifications at two nearby Brooklyn locations, infill at Diker Meadow Park and the extension of a seawall at the Narrows near Fort Hamilton. Building costs totaled $36 million in addition to the $9 million price tag for the land. Gilbert, in concert with his engineering staff and consultants from the government, settled on a plan that reflected careful relationships between buildings, piers, and rail yards. Four piers jutted 1,300 feet into the harbor, and Building A was situated close by at a right angle. Building B was set parallel to Building A on the other side of a 150-foot-wide street that ran north to south. This area allowed circulation of freight and vehicles between the buildings and through the site. Rail lines ran alongside the western edge of Building A between the warehouses on the wide street and even into Building B, an important feature to which I'll return. Storage yards for trains extended east towards 2nd Avenue and south near the facilities of the LIRR. Overall, it is important to think about the original and existing site as a campus. Significantly, Gilbert had experience in comprehensive planning of several school and urban projects. In the decade before the design of the U.S. Army Supply Base, he developed master plans for the University of Minnesota, the University of Texas, and Oberlin College. He also developed comprehensive plans for the approaches to the Minnesota State Capitol, an art center in downtown Detroit, and a master plan for New Haven, Connecticut, a project on which he collaborated with Frederick Law Olmsted. As an aside, even later in his career, he developed comprehensive plans for Seaside Sanatorium, a children's tubercular hospital in Waterford, Connecticut, and even studies for how his design for the United States Supreme Court would relate to nearby parks and monuments. This idea of developing projects with an overarching orientation was a significant theme in his practice. By mid-career in the early teens of the 20th century, Gilbert did not simply plan building by building, but often envisioned something much larger and more multifaceted and contextual. This tactic was certainly the case with the supply base with its architectural land transit and shipping aspects. For the design of the base, Gilbert and his engineers opted to use a construction system of reinforced concrete slabs supported by spiraling reinforced concrete mushroom columns that were flared at the top. This decision allowed natural light to stream into unencumbered warehouse interiors. The columns placed 20 feet on center, had shafts that were three feet in diameter and capitals that flanged to five feet. Reinforced concrete was a material that had much to recommend it. It could be used to construct a building quickly. It was fireproof and it could be shaped according to the demands of a design. The mixture that was used throughout the U.S. Army supply base was made from stone, sand, and cement, with a fractional amount of a compound named toximent added to increase the concrete's water resistance. Stone came from trap rock quarried from Hudson Yards. Thousands of tons of sand and beach gravel came from as far afield as Huntington Bay in western Suffolk County on Long Island. Wood forms for the shaping of concrete were trucked in from a location a bit closer, Sheepshead Bay, about eight miles away. Construction was a highly choreographed operation with several specialized steps that required cooperation between many parties and stakeholders. The assembly line for concrete mixing, fabrication, and inspections alone was reported to have proceeded like clockwork. The interior atrium of Building B was the most distinctive aspect of the Army's complex. Made possible by the use of reinforced concrete and also Gilbert's design, it is one of the great interior spaces in modern American architecture. Trains entered the warehouse directly. Under the longitudinal skylight, diagonally positioned balconies could receive supplies easily from an overhead traveling crane scooping out freight from train cars below. The offset arrangement of balconies prevented interference from other such projections. This idea came from consultation with C.W. Avery, an engineer from the Ford Motor Company. Bush had requested that Ford allow one of his expert engineers to study the subject of the interior, Dean E. Poglase from Gilbert's office, and B.F. Cresson, the Army's representative, traveled to the Motor Works plant in Detroit to meet with Henry Ford and Avery. It was at that meeting that Avery suggested using cranes and overhead balconies, much like those that he and Albert Kahn had used in the Ford plant. As Gilbert scholar Sharon Irish has noted, this design embodied the central and overarching goal of the base, to move goods efficiently and quickly Aiding this goal, bridges at the third floor level connected piers to warehouses and the warehouses to one another. Subterranean connections at the basement level of buildings A and B also furthered this cause. The main receiving floor from trains and motor trucks was the ground floor. Trucks could drive up to all four sides of the warehouses and discharge their freight. Ninety-six. Five ton capacity Otis elevators were essential to the vertical movement of freight to other levels, ultimately bound for the piers where it would be loaded on freighters. Small tractors towing several trailers of freight could enter one side of an elevator, drop off their cargo, and drive out the other. From a central dispatch location, pre established times were programmed for the elevators to stop from floor to floor although dispatchers could be contacted by telephone for additional runs. The portable equipment on record as of September 1, 1919 included the following, 72 tractors, 1,065 trailers, and nearly 1,300 trucks of more than a dozen types. Add to this the many other types of equipment, rail cars, and ships, the supply base, had a robust inventory of mechanical and nautical means to see its work to completion. At peak operation, it was thought that the complex could handle 1,500 tons of outgoing freight per hour and storage for half a million tons of supplies. Gilbert himself was savvy in recognizing that the most significant aspect of his design was to create conditions for this movement of goods. In 1919, he evocatively wrote, quote, The modern storage warehouse should be no more regarded as a tomb for merchandise than the modern high-pressure boiler as a tank for water. If merchandise does not flow through it freely and easily, it is stagnant and unprofitable. It is worse than that. It is an aneurysm on traffic. It is a cause of delay." A mixed, mixed metaphors of water and medicine, Gilbert keenly understood that his buildings were largely a stage for this constant state of change. This focus on industrial operations was indicative of broader trends in systematic management in both industry and the military. Goethals had been appointed as General Manager and Director of the Emergency Fleet Corporation, whose charge it was to carry soldiers and supplies to France as quickly as possible. By the close of 1917, he had then been appointed director of the Purchase, Storage and Traffic or ps division. In this work, he systematically addressed the shortage of troops, a decentralized supply system and uncoordinated efforts and turned the division around into a model of systematic and efficient management. With the terminal warehouse in Brooklyn, he possessed a physical entity that could put his theoretical and managerial policies into practice. The scale of the labor and equipment for construction was remarkable. 6,000 workmen were attracted to the site's construction jobs, which were unionized. One quarter of the men were Italian, and they worked as concrete laborers, Another quarter were American, as described in one period account, and also Norwegian and Swedish. There were carpenters, masons, steelworkers, engineers, foremen, and surveyors. Approximately one-tenth of the workers were African American, and they were also concrete workers, like their Italian colleagues. The balance of the workforce came from other nationalities and ethnicities. Greek, Russian, Polish, and Lithuanian among them. The men mostly came from Brooklyn and Manhattan, with some from Queens and Long Island. For those coming from Manhattan, a special subway ran from 14th Street every morning at 6.15 a.m. to accommodate the large number of employees needing to get to the 58th Street station by 7 o'clock when their workday started. Nearly all of the men worked overtime, with a limit set at nine and a half hours for mechanics and 10 for laborers. For the entire roster of construction workers, the federal government paid the whopping sum of $200,000 per week, which would be equal to more than $3.2 million today. Ground was broken on the project on May 15, 1918, and within a mere six months, the piers were in operation one can imagine the site as a hive of activity with people and stuff swarming everywhere. This was a place where human and mechanical sounds continually punctuated the air. Voices yelling to one another, truck engines humming from the delivery of materials for the concrete mix. Conveyor belts clattering to deliver materials where needed. Gravel, sand, and stone crashing out of buckets into mixing bins steel rods and pipes clanging as they were transported to the concrete pour areas, moving derricks, droning in escalating sequence as they transferred materials from one place to another. Sound was everywhere, and as the Brooklyn Eagle reporter wrote about his observations of the site, all of these elements made up a, quote, panorama never to be forgotten by the beholder, unquote. The amount of material used in construction was just as staggering. Newspaper and engineering periodicals giddily recited mind-boggling statistics. 8.2 million feet of lumber from the Pacific Northwest, 12,000 tons of steel, and 12,000 marine piles of yellow pine from the South were used in construction. It was also reported that if the amount of sand, stone, and cement were stacked vertically, it would make a column 100 feet square and 500 feet tall. Alternately, if the boats that delivered this cargo were lined up with five feet in between them, they would stretch for seven miles. Because of the urgency of the project, not a day was known to have been lost as a result of the delay in procuring the necessary materials. After World War I was over, the terminal served a significant role in deploying supplies and troops in World War II. Later, it was used in the Korean War and also the Vietnam War. In the past century, the United States Army supply base has received praise and attention from several architects. 19th century art critic and architect, Russell Sturgis praised Gilbert's design. Le Corbusier published a bird's-eye view rendering of the proposed plan in his publication of 1923, Vers une Architecture, later translated as Towards a New Architecture. Richard Neutra published a view of Building B in his book about new buildings in America, and Albert Kahn praised the complex for its simplicity and splendid proportions, lauding Gilbert for creating a work, quote, of the highest architectural merit. These architects and others, including contemporary visitors in our own time, have appreciated the history and design of this medieval-like fortress that rose on the Brooklyn shoreline 100 years ago. In 1918, the Brooklyn Eagle journalist wrote, "'These buildings are of such a substantial character, "'they will be a permanent addition "'to Brooklyn's commercial importance long after the drumbeats of war shall have faded from memory." Perhaps this sentiment has come to fruition, with the complex serving today as an incubator for light industry. Owned by the New York City Economic Development Corporation, the Brooklyn Army Terminal has become a new kind of hub, one that is a nexus for the flow of diverse goods into the American economy. These buildings carry a long and rich history, and in recent years, they have entered a fresh chapter in New York City's landscape.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Sites and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcast at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.